following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. It's peak season for asparagus, which pairs perfectly with a light and crisp rosé. Many bottles of champagne and sparkling wines are perfect for adult Easter baskets. And they're really cute, too. My perfect brunch? Belgian waffles with extra whipped cream and a holiday pour of your sweetest rosé. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! Hey, everybody. Could you do the show a favor and fill out a survey at podcastone.com? You'll see the survey banner on the homepage. It'll take you less than five minutes, and it really helps us out. That's podcastone.com, and thank you so much. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Forbes Sports Money Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Ozanian. On this show, we talk about the business of sports. Today, my guest is Al Guido, president of the San Francisco 49ers. Al, thanks a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Appreciate it, Mike. Thank you for the time. So, Al, I guess in a stadium like Levi's Stadium, there's never a shortage of business opportunities. No, that's a fair statement. I mean, I think we, when we when we built this stadium, I don't think any of the stadiums that are built in today's day and age, you know, with the money that you spend and how you think about the business, we never we never thought about this as just a ten or twelve date a year building. And so we we try to be a three sixty five building and and pack it with as much content as we possibly can. And obviously, we, our main focus is the Forty ers and and on our on the field product and winning Super Bowls for our fan base. But there's no question that we we wanted to make sure we brought massive events to the Bay Area. How much has the importance of non-NFL revenue increased, Al, uh, given all the new stadiums that have come online the past decade? Well, I think it's crucial to how you finance these buildings. I mean, if you think about it in this day and age, I mean, you got our building, which was, you know, right around $1.3 billion. Uh, You got Atlanta coming online, which, you know, from reports call it $1.4, $1.5 billion, I think. LA's even north of two billion, and so as you think about it, um, it doesn't make a hell, you know a lot of sense to build these you know these big structures and spend this money for just ten days a year. And you know our structure is a little bit different, Mike, in the sense that the non-NFL event revenue doesn't really filter down to the team, the San Francisco 49ers. The stadium is owned by the city of Santa Clara. And, and our job as the stadium manager and booker is to make sure that the building is filled with content so that that revenue flows directly to the general fund. And, you know, when we look at events, we don't look at just simple P&Ls, right, whether or not the event is profitable. Obviously, you want to book as many profitable events as you can. But I think the economic impact from some of these events, if you think about the Super Bowl and WrestleMania and for us, we just had the Gold Cup and Copa America. I mean, we've done over $500 million in economic impact for this region, and that's not counting just obviously even all the small events that we do. And so I think about it in the sense of have great content, drive people to your region, increase hotel occupancy rates, increase sales tax, and that's how these buildings make sense for municipalities. Why is that important to the 49ers that revenue goes to the general fund? I think it's a brand. It's a, it's certainly a brand play, and there's no question, Mike, that when you think about our our SBL holders, some people in sports call it PSLs. We call it SBLs. Um, similar thought process. 
when you think about our suites, when you think about sponsorship, there's no question in my mind that all of those deals are more valuable because um, we sold this building with the thought process that we would host these large events. And so you, you have a hard time quantifying it, right? But what does Levi's or SAP or some of our sponsors spend over and above maybe what the NFL average is in that category because we weren't going to be just about 10 or 12 dates. And so while that might not show up on a, on a individualized P&L for an event, it certainly makes sense from the broader, you know, the, in the broader landscape of the 49ers. So somebody buys a builder, seats li- a builder seat license, and part of that is that also gives them a right for tickets to non-49er games there. So if there's a concert there or something like that, they have that ticket. That's exactly right, Mike. And if you think about you know, even the, the guys north of us who are building an arena down in San Francisco, I mean, I'm sure you know, they're going to be in the market to pack that building. I mean, if you think about the greatest stadiums, arenas, ballparks. I mean, we always thought, I mean, take a look at Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden has a brand in and of itself. Yes, the Knicks and Rangers play there, but the building itself has a brand due to obviously all the massive events that have gone through there. I mean, if you walk the hallways of the suite corridor, it's like a museum to, to music and sport. And we had the same thought process here. Now, obviously with an outdoor venue, you can't do some of the things an indoor arena or an indoor dome stadium could do, but that doesn't mean that you can't you can't provide a lot of great quality content for our fan base. I was under the impression, Al, that up to a certain point, the 49ers or a 49ers-related company did get a certain percentage or a certain amount of non-NFL revenue from the stadium. Am I wrong? No, you're not. You're not wrong, Mike. I mean, we do receive um, portions of the revenue from any non-NFL event. Every event's a little bit different, but not to get too technical in the breakdown of, um, you know, the Santa Clara Stadium Authority versus the 49ers. Um, most of the revenue that we keep from from the large-scale events would be suite revenue. The remainder of the revenue would go directly to the Santa Clara Stadium Authority because that's portions of the building that they own. Uh, and so it gets a it, again it gets very technical, but there's no question that we benefit from the events here at Levi's. It's just we don't benefit nearly as much. If you were to think about a, just a percentage split, think about it as kind of a ninety ten split on their side of the ledger. Right. I read, and, and and if this is true, please elaborate a little bit. But but you originally sort of got into this industry big time uh, when you were applying for a job. I think it was with the Cowboys, and you were uh, accidentally copied on an email that basically said, you know, Al's a very nice guy, very organized and all that, but I, I don't know if he's really enthusiastic enough for this job. That's spot on, Mike. You've done your homework. Uh, so the story goes, uh, my wife and I were working for the Phoenix Coyotes, and I had just gotten an offer to be the vice president of sales and service, and I don't know, I might have been 26, 27 years old at the time. And so I thought I was doing fantastic, right? And I go down to Dallas, and as you can imagine, I had a great life in Arizona. My wife and I are both working for the team. We're thinking about, we just got married. We're thinking about having kids. And and so the thought of going to Dallas when my wife had such a great job back in Phoenix was tough at the time. And so I went down to the interview, and as you stated, I thought I did a great job, but there was no question that, 
I just had this pit in my stomach. We all know it. You go in through the interview and you feel like, I oh, man, I did great, but I didn't nail this thing, or I might have missed this, or. And so I just knew. I sat down. The last person I sat down with was was Jerry Jones, and I don't know that I knew how big the opportunity was, right? Because the stadium really wasn't out there at that time, not in my mind or in the sports people's minds. And so when I finally got his vision and his thought process, I was. I got in the car, I got on my way home, and I immediately said to myself, wow, I, I, I could have done a better job. And I got accidentally copied on an email. The email was supposed to go to a guy by the name of Alex Shiner, who was the, the Cowboys general counsel, and instead went to me. And the story plays out that I responded to the Cowboys ownership group and said that if they didn't hire me, it would be the worst mistake the Dallas Cowboys ever made in their franchise history. And no more than... 20 minutes went by, and I got a call from Stephen Jones, who then put his dad on the phone and told me I was hired. You know, uh, knowing Jerry Jones, uh, he was probably really, really in- impressed by that. Had You know, going down there, um, uh, the first time I actually went down there, I, I was at a publication, uh, must have been 1989, called Financial World, it was when we first started getting into this whole thing of uh, valuing sports teams. Anyway, so I go down with another guy who works at Financial World who set up the interview and who uh, was from the South. And so this is right after Jerry bought the team, right? And, you know, so he's leveraged up the gazelle. Every penny he had could borrow, could scrape together is, is on this team that's losing like, I, don't, I think it was like $30,000 a month or something at that point, you know. None of the suites were selling. You know, the team had fallen off of its pedestal, wasn't doing well. And I was just so intimidated, you know, at first. I mean, you know, it, it was just uh, it was just very, very tough to get through. I mean, I, I, he kind of looked like, you know, if I did one false move, you know, I mean, he wouldn't even really talk to me. He would only talk to the other guy, I guess. He trusted him because they were both from the South. But my feeling was like, you know, if I made a mistake here, this could be my last uh, interview. Were, were you intimidated at all? I mean, I think he probably softened up a little bit from the time you met him. Um. I think in the beginning I was I was in awe, right? I mean, I'm 27 years old or or something around that time frame, and so sitting down with with the man, I just, I just wanted to hear him. I mean, and Jerry, well, you know now because you you've been with him. I mean, Jerry's the greatest salesman you'll ever meet, and it it was the complete opposite of how a normal interview goes, right? A normal interview, the interview asks you a bunch of questions, you tell them why you're perfect for the job, and so on and so forth. Well. I think I might have told him my name, where I work, <laughs> where I where I grew up, and that. And so I spoke for about five minutes. He spoke for the other forty, um, or whatever it was, all about how much this was going to change professional sports and why he felt so passionate about it. And uh, and so yeah, I mean, I never uh, I never was intimidated. I would say I was somewhat in awe of the opportunity, and then. Um, it was funny, Roger and I, um, who he set up this interview with, were just talking about Jim Trier's piece on ESPN, and and uh, Roger was asking me about it, because obviously I spent a lot of time with him, and, and I would say he was uh, he was great to work for, he was passionate, he showed up, he was probably the first person in the office every day, even at 70-some years old, I mean, he was, you know, he lived and breathed and slept the Cowboys, and uh, you could feel that, and there's no doubt he really took care of his employees, and that's probably the biggest thing I learned from him is just the culture and how to treat people, and and then obviously the motivation and sales skills certainly come with it. Well, I'll, I'll say this. Over the years, um, I've gotten to know uh, 
Jerry and his sons and daughter pretty well. And there are three things I could say unequivocally. One is he is one of, if not the smartest sports business guys I've ever talked to. Uh, two is, you know, uh, you know, pe- people kind of sometimes that just look at football from the wins and losses perspective, um, you know, don't see this. But he has been an incredible innovator, not just for the NFL, but for all of sports. You know, he kind of laid out the blueprint, uh, as you mentioned, for the new stadium era, as as well as, you know, economics in general for professional sports. And thirdly, he has always been incredibly honest. Uh, You know, if there's something he can't say, he won't tell me, you know, but if there's... Uh, if there's something he's explaining to me uh, about the way it is, you know, uh, I may it may take two or three years, but I'll eventually find out, you know, that that's actually the way it was precisely. Um, did you get to meet? I, you know, I have to ask you this, uh, Marilyn, his assistant. I think she's been with him since forever. Did you get to meet her at all? She's awesome. I, I did. Yeah. I did. I know. I know the whole family, yeah. and uh, you know, I still talk to him and uh, sent. Stephen and and his family a note last year when John Stephen won the state championship game and you described it Mike I mean I, honestly I mean just not I've been fortunate enough I mean this is probably my I want to say it's my 11th season in the NFL uh, and and I've been able to work for two great organizations and Jed York has a similar while certainly different in nature but what I would say to both on both sides is. Uh, Jerry had a famous statement for me. I was in a meeting with him, and he and we were going out around the room discussing something, and I can't get into what that something is. But his answer was, "I'm tired of everybody telling me why this can't happen. Somebody tell me why it can." And uh, and Jed has the same. You know, Jed York has the same sort of thought process, and and I liken it to a quote that I use a lot, which Jed kind of has a yes if as opposed to a no because mentality, and I think. That's crucial in today's uh, day and age. You always got to be pushing the boundaries of things, and and we push a lot on the NFL to get as much as we possibly can. and And I think Jerry does the same thing down at the Cowboys, and I believe that's how you get to the the quote unquote top of the leaderboard in the on the business side is by constantly pushing. And breaking away to say this show is brought to you by the Business Platinum Card from American Express. However, you move your business forward. With Business Platinum, it's not about where you are. It's about where you want to take your business next. And nothing helps you like the resources and know-how of the Business Platinum card, backed by the service and security of American Express. Al, was there a sharp contrast also? You mentioned you came from the Coyotes of the National Hockey League. Now, I mean, you know, I'm not going to uh, make fun of them at all, but they they went through some very hard times. They came out of bankruptcy, I think in 09 or 010, somewhere around there. I mean, they, they had some uh, tough economics down there with the real estate market and everything. And then, you know, you, so you sort of go from a struggling team in the NHL to the team in the NFL. Yeah, I mean, it was, well, what I would tell you, it's the best um, on-the-job training I've ever received because... You just mentioned it. I mean, selling hockey in the desert. I mean, one would joke if you can sell hockey in the desert, you can sell anything anywhere. And uh, I think the challenges that we had as an organization in Phoenix really prepared me for what happens in sports, which is the cycle of ups and downs. Right? You never can let yourself get too overjoyed, and you can never let yourself get too down because the sports world is cyclical. And I think the best organizations – 
do the exact same things on the business side, whether they're winning or losing. And so I've always felt like sales is sales, right? The product is the only thing that changes. And so in in Phoenix, you were selling a hockey product. In Dallas, you were selling a football product. And I didn't let myself get too wrapped up in, in the moment. I focused on the strategy and the process and the results. And I think if you do that, honestly, no matter what team you're working for, I think you'll have success. In terms of the actual tests you were doing on a day-to-day basis, Al, with the Cowboys, uh, what were the experiences there that taught you the most? Wow. Um, so I would say the this, this sales and marketing tasks, there's no question um, in stadium development and club build-outs and all the things that had to go into building that stadium taught me the most, um, at least at that time. I think it prepared me when I got to the 49ers as a Legends employee I really felt like I knew the sales, marketing, PSL, sponsorship, stadium design route very well. I could come into this building at Levi's and take a blank shell of premium spaces and think about it from all different angles, from food service angles to wait lines to how someone enters and exits the building to how you market, promote, and package all of the products in a different way. I really felt like I was able to come in and, and, and do the best job I possibly could working on that angle um, after my experience with the Cowboys. And I would say the, the, it's never just one thing. The ability and the knowledge of booking content. Uh, Chad Estes does a fantastic job for the Dallas Cowboys on booking content. And Jerry... I mean, working with Jerry, you know, I was part of the team that flew Bob Arum in when we wanted to host the Pacquiao boxing match. And boxing, you would have never thought outside of New York or Vegas, um, but Jerry wanted to host it in his building. So I just think that, you know, the creative ways to think about using your stadium, plus all the, the sales and marketing on the football team side are the two things I learned the most. Did, did that Pacquiao fight happen there? Yeah, we did, did a Pacquiao okay. fight. We never did the Pacquiao Mayweather fight. That's what it was. Okay. It took years for that thing to finally happen, um, but we did We did do a Pacquiao fight. And you mentioned Legends, so you trans you uh, transitioned from the Dallas Cowboys to Legends Hospitality, which, uh, if I remember correctly, was about a third owned by the Cowboys, a third the New York Yankees, and then roughly speaking, a third Providence Equity, which I think recently has has gotten out or not that long ago. So, so, and they that must have been a very exciting period because if my history is correct, Al, that's when they were really kind of just taking off and starting to really spread beyond the Cowboys and the Yankees and getting into other stadiums. That's exactly right, Mike. So when I I was the I guess second employee, Chad Estes being the first employee on the sales and marketing side. Uh, we were, and, and the, the group was Goldman, um, now New Mountain, but um, you were close. And, and so we were really, I mean, you're right, we were a startup. I mean, we, we had, Chad and I had business cards that said legends, but we had no clients. And I remember our first meeting was with John Calipari, and um, Kentucky was discussing a Rupp Arena uh, new build or a renovation. So, you know, circa, I think this is 2007. And and we just felt like we had something. There was a lot of people that kept coming through Cowboy Stadium and saying, wow, I can't believe you guys pulled this off. And and 
so we, we started to go to market with that, and we partnered with IMG at the time. We did a joint venture with IMG, which is now dissolved on the Legends relationship side. But what happened was is that the, the journal picked it up, and uh, Jed York, who was looking to build a stadium in Santa Clara, reached out to our team and said, look, we'd love to come down and meet with you guys. And that was our first big client. And then after that, I was able to work on, you know, while I moved to the Bay Area, because it was obviously such a massive client, and Jerry wanted to make sure that he took care of his NFL partner the best way he could. I moved out here, but then right after that, it sort of took off. I mean, we we got the Rose Bowl renovation. We had Churchill Downs. We had Manchester City. And I would say for my own personal career, that's where I think I really started to learn the others quote-unquote nooks and crannies of the business because what we were describing describing at the beginning of this podcast, I really understood how stadiums got financed and built and you know the relationship between the team and the city because every single one of these venues was very different and working on them from the ground up I think helped me get to where I'm at today. Al, how would you contrast uh, the Cowboys' new stadium and the 49ers new stadium, Levi Stadium, in the context of what the challenge was for you. You know, you mentioned the financing. Uh, 49ers Stadium, uh, virtually entirely privately financed. Uh, I think uh, although the Cowboys Stadium had privately financing, it wasn't the same there. There was some public money. And also oh, they had about two, $300 million in public, right? And two yeah. very different markets. Uh, which I imagine have different opportunities and different challenges. How would you contrast those two in terms of some of the things you did, if you can give some examples? Yeah, I mean, the the simple answer I give everybody when asked this question is everybody knew the Cowboys was happening. It was a matter of whether or not you you personally, the fan, were going to be in that venue. There was no doubt in anyone's mind in Dallas that Jerry was going to do it. Jerry was going to pull it off, right? We lost a lot of season ticket orders along the way due to, obviously, the, the PSL numbers that we charged. Um, but there was never a newspaper, media outlet, anything that ever said, well, this won't happen. Flip now to Levi Stadium. There was two ballot measures passed and a stadium never built. There had not been a stadium built in California in 50 years. And honestly, if you polled the local media, of them would say there was no chance this deal was ever going to happen. And and so convincing that you could go pull this off was so different from my time at the Cowboys. I mean, you weren't just talking to somebody about the stadium. You were talking to somebody about whether or not this could actually happen and all the reasons it should happen. And so that honestly was the biggest difference between the two projects. And um, they're both near and dear to my heart for, for reasons, but this one, and I don't say this because I'm biased, and you would probably say I'm biased because I work here, but the belief that one needed, I mean, I think about the hundreds of employees who worked on this deal and having to pick up and read the paper every day and say that you're never going to do it. I mean, the belief in these walls was, I mean, it, it, it woke you up in the morning, and it got you motivated to go to, you know, to, go to the office and, and you know, quote-unquote prove everybody wrong that you could pull it off. And that was really neat. To me, it was. It seems mind-boggling to have to decide what events should be at a stadium in order to uh, accommodate, as you touched on, the financing that was necessary to build the stadium uh, and and maximize uh, the revenue, 
So the debt obligations could be met by the stadium authority. And then also uh, you got the different seasons, right? I mean, you know, you obviously you can only have a football game there during football season. And then, you know, what do you do during the summer? How, does, how do you approach that process? You know, what, what are the steps you go through in order to figure that out for an upcoming year? There's no one um, checklist that says, let's go do this event, right? Because certain events are RFP or bid processes, which, as you can imagine, as you get into these bid processes, it might be a race to the bottom, right? Because you're essentially just trying to win an event. So then the question becomes, at a grand level or at a 30,000 foot level, what are the other reasons to host an event of that scale? And I, I can tell you that if we didn't have the Pac-12 championship, there's no way we win the 2019 college football national title bid. There's no way we do the college football, you know, the Foster Farms bowl game, right? There's just, sometimes you have to be in one business to get the other. And then the other parts of the of the world where I don't think you spend a lot of time on the P&L is, games that are played on national television. If you think about your naming rights partner or your sponsors, right, while that might not be um, noted on a profit and loss statement, that's certainly noted uh, as a as naming rights partner and the eyeballs and the impressions that you're selling, you know, as you get into renewing these deals. So I would say, again, there's no one checklist that says, yes, let's do this event or no, let's not do this event. I think you have to think about the entire uh, scope of what an event may bring to the area, and if the overall benefit outweighs whatever negative there is, you do it. You know, I, if I understand you correctly, Al, what you're saying really is just because somebody is on the top ten list of Pulse Star's annual ticket ranking from stadiums doesn't mean they're making money. Uh, but at the same time, there may be a football game out there you bid for even though the profit margin could be negligible just because you know it will then get you the championship game, in which case, A, you'll know you'll make a lot of money, and B, the branding for your sponsors is going to be enormous because of the huge TV ratings. You you got it. I mean, take a look at this last Gold Cup, and we put in an aggressive bid. We wanted, we wanted to host the Gold Cup final. <laughs> when we responded to the RFP, we gave one set of economics for all the other games, and we gave a different set of economics for the final. Because for us, now, I'm not sure if anybody else did that, and they didn't ask for that. But for us, we wanted, you know, I think in the 100 years it's been played, 90% of the time it's USA-Mexico, right? We wanted that match in our building because we have a great partnership with some in USA soccer. And if you think about it, once we, when we bid on that event, we had no idea that Mexico, U.S., and Canada were going to come together on a 2026 World Cup bid. But it certainly helped. I believe it will help that we had the entire federation and FIFA people in our building last Wednesday night. And so, again, sometimes you don't know why you do the, you know, you don't have all the answers, right? But you just say to yourself, does this event fit our brand? Is it profitable? Will it lead to future business? Does it um, generate economic impact above and beyond the event itself in our region? And if all those answers are yes, Sometimes some of those answers might be no, or might be no. But if, again, if the if the overall checklist is yes, you go do it. And taking a break to say, there's this place in Bali where you can play 18 holes next to an active volcano. There's this fountain in Miami that goes off with every home run. There's this subway line in New York that'll take you straight to both arenas. 
There's an exciting and thrilling world waiting, and no other card lets you experience it like the Business Platinum Card from American Express, backed by the service and security of American Express. Here at Podcast One, we love hearing from you. We read every tweet and comment you send our way. So don't miss your chance to take our summer listener survey. Just go to podcastone.com and click on the survey banner. Or go to podcastone.com slash mysurvey. It only takes a few minutes, and it gives you the opportunity to make a direct impact on your favorite shows. Tell us how you really feel so we can get to know you better. We value your thoughts and participation. So check out the survey at podcastone.com slash mysurvey. Or click on the survey banner on podcast. As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch Garden Gnomes too carefully. People might talk. Now, you became president of the 49ers in early 2016. Uh, you know, around this time, the other teams in the area have also gotten hot. You know, the, the, the uh, Golden State Warriors uh, championship team, they're building a new arena. Um the Giants have done a great job. I mean, you know, Larry Bear is very creative, the president of the San Francisco Giants. I mean, I think he even brought, like, ski jumping there several years ago out to, had to, out to the ballpark. What are some of the uh, – I mean, this, this has to be a very, very positive environment, but a very challenging environment. Are there, are there some sort of out-of-the-box things you've come up with in order to uh, bring events and keep Levi's Stadium humming? You're you're not kidding. I mean, I I you know Larry Bear, Rick Welch, John Tatora, Dave Cavill, you know Mark Bedane. I mean, like I, all these guys are friends. Um, we we like to compete against each other. I mean, I I think it's honestly it's it's great for our region that we're all very competitive. Um, and so there's no doubt we we spend a lot of time on how do we make sure that we keep the building vibrant, not just on 49ers games but outside of it and. Uh, and so that you know, you look at maybe the Michael Mina restaurant, which not many stadiums have a Michelin star-rated chef in their building. You look at what we did on the 49ers Museum to pay homage to our history and fan base and the ability for people to go through there. You think about um, some of the events outside the ones that you know, the ones we didn't mention today. We did a, a stadium link, some a golf tournament the other day. We've done esports challenges. So. Again, it's just it's just thinking outside the box and being creative. And then, honestly, you know, relative to our fans, um, we're very fortunate. I, I think we have the best fans in the NFL. I mean, we've had a tough couple of years at Levi Stadium on the field, and and certainly made some missteps off the field relative to some of the operations, which you know we fixed over the last couple of years. But we've had a 97 percent renewal rate. I think a lot of that is because. You know, we've probably done over, we've done hundreds of thousands of surveys for, of our fans. We've instituted over a hundred changes to Levi Stadium. I mean, some as big as um, putting, you know, the Ring of Honor signage in the building or, or spending $10 million in CapEx on parking lot changes. I mean, a lot of it is you can't rest on your laurels in this business, and I don't care whether you're in a competitive market or not. There's just so much out there for fans to do. Um, for content can, can can be consumed in a number of different ways now. So 
whether we're in a competitive market or not, the 49ers are always going to do or try to do as much as they possibly can can to retain their customers and add new ones. I, you know, I'm a, I, probably, I don't know, 20 years older than you are, 15 years, I'd say at least. So I remember Dwight Clark's The Catch like it was yesterday and, and those great, great 49er teams. Uh, I'm a Giant fan, so I've, I've taken it on the chin a couple times uh, from the 49ers. Although we did okay in 1990. I think that was, that was a, a good one, that uh, 15-13 game out there at the stick. But I think, I, and I have no data to support this. Um, this is purely visceral on my part, that when you went back and, and you reconnected the team and its fans to the team's rich history and the players, it seems to me to have really, really boosted and re-energized uh, the fan base out there. Mike, that's right. I mean, I, I mean, you spoke. I mean, the there's such um, there's such a rich feeling, and as you can imagine, right, five Super Bowl championships. I mean, some of the greatest games in NFL history, some of the most iconic memories and moments in NFL history. You just mentioned one with Dwight Clark. I, I think our job is to, to honor their accomplishments and to support them, and and to bring them into the fold as much as we possibly can. And we're doing it on the field now, John Lynch and Kyle. I think the neat part about John Lynch. Is he played at Stanford under Bill Walsh? So while Steve Young calls him the adopted son, he never he never wore a Forty ers jersey, but he knows what it means to be a Forty er through Bill. And if you think about Kyle being a ball boy, you know it, during his time when Mike was when his father was the coach here, and then the, the, we we took the step this past year with a lot of the alumni's guidance, which we created something called the Golden Heart Fund. And uh, the York family and Eddie DeBartolo uh, made the first donation of a million dollars each. And it's really to take care of our alumni players, um, Pat, you know, and not just health, but, you know, whether they're going through financial challenges in their life. And the NFL certainly has great programs, but we felt we needed to go a step further for them. And we built the museum. We uh, The proceeds that, that we gain from the museum go directly to the Golden Heart Fund. We're super proud of, of where that's gone to date. I mean, you have obviously over $2 million in that fund to help support our former players. And, and honestly, that really resonates not just with the alumni but our fan base. And I believe there's also a lot of money the team invents, uh, invests in STEM, you know, science, tech, engineering, math, uh, in terms of giving back to the community. I say it all the time, Mike. Uh, sports organizations and their players are more than the ten games they play on the field. I mean, these these kids and adults—they're passionate about things in their life, right? Challenges that they might have had when they grew up. I mean, I remember Frank Gore and some of the things he did when he was a 49er, and now, you know, Tory Smith was a Walter Payton Man of the Year award or you know nominee last year, and and Eric Reed is super engaged in the community and a lot of these guys have their own foundations but our our foundation and mission is to keep kids safe on track and in school um, we have a stem program on premise that uh, does 60,000 kids k through 8 free of charge we've built our own curriculum we have full-time teachers on staff and so you know over the course of the last 25 years we've given out 40 million dollars and we're proud to be named the ESPN sports humanitarian team of the year last year and we're going to keep at it. I mean, we want every child uh, who goes to school or plays football, whether it be flag or tackle, to walk around with the 49ers logo on their chest and be proud of that. And uh, and if we can support those causes, um, we're going to do so. Because, again, 
you know, we might be a small family business. You know, you spend a lot of time with these with these people. We're we're only 400 employees. We're not a massive corporation in that sense, but our brand and what football means and the escape that that sports brings people, um, we want to use that to to create great change uh, in our community. Al, Levi Stadium is one of, if not the most high-tech stadiums in the world. How does that help you do your job? Wow. I mean, it's so – I didn't even know it when I got – I mean, obviously not being from the Bay Area, um, or, or, but the amount of technology and people that are reaching out to help us gain more efficiencies in our business. And Jed says it all the time. I mean, he wanted to build a software-driven stadium, not a hardware-driven stadium. And and just to deal, you know, drill down on the weeds there, I mean, there's no doubt we have LED boards and we have big scoreboards, but – he wanted to create a stadium where he saw where mobile phones were going, where cashless and paperless were, were headed. And in this marketplace, it was sort of just a mandate to get there. And, and I had no idea what it would mean um, in, in, in real life, right? But now, if you think about it, we have over 70% of our, right around 60 to 70% of our fans that are entering the game with mobile tickets, which means we know every single person that's coming into the venue. And and how we're able to market to those people, how we're able to secure the venue. I think the, the days where you don't know the identity of people in your venues has to end. It has to end now. And I think the, the mobile piece allows us to do so much. And sports was always what I call push marketing, right? It was you, you pushed a message out and you pushed it out to the whole world and people took what they wanted from it or they opted out. Now... You know, a lot of it's pull marketing in the sense of because each in its, in ex, each in experience can be individualized based off the data that we're able to pull from it. So it's been fantastic to our business on the marketing side. And then, honestly, the operations side has been great because whether it's food spoilage or whether it's gate entry times or parking lot, I mean, we're able to manage our, our operations so much more efficiently today than we were in, in the first year of the stadium because we know customer behavior. You mentioned eSports earlier as being uh, one of the things that you have at Levi's Stadium. Uh, what about drone racing? You know, I, I was talking to the Dolphins a couple of years ago, and uh, Stephen Ross was, was bringing that in there. I mean, eSports is big. Drone racing seems like it's getting big. Um, you guys planning on having any drone races there anytime soon? <laughs> we don't have any drone races on the docket, and... Um... Uh, we're we're right next to an airport, so I got we're going to have to check with the FAA on the drone racing um, experience. But no, I mean I we what I'm proud of here, and, and the ownership of us obviously gives us the flexibility to do this. I have a nine person uh, business strategy and analytics team. We're constantly looking at deals um, left and right to not just to think about how we can better operate our business, but what other businesses can we be involved in and. And we've done a great job, I and mean, we've invested, I think, in over 40 companies in the last two years here. Um, you know that that you know we use their technology, and obviously, our you know we help them from a strategy perspective um, get 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 in get into the world of sports. And so, whether it's esports or whether it's uh, VR or AR, I mean, we're constantly looking at opportunities to either increase the fan experience, inc- increase our player performance or health and safety or improve our business efficiencies, um, you know, inside of Levi's Stadium. That's fascinating. So just to make sure I understand you correctly, Al, you're investing in uh, a lot of businesses and then working with those businesses 
to to help grow them uh, outside of events at Levi's Stadium? That's right. I mean, you know, at times we, you know, you could you could act like a passive investor. I mean, there's certainly things or. If you think about it from a strategic perspective, um, and a lot of teams have created incubators, and we're not against that idea. I think it's a great idea. Um, for us, uh, not everyone can write a seven-figure check. And if you think about the world of sponsorship, and today we're at seven or six-figure, whatever whatever figure you want to use, um, a lot of these are you know, startup companies or early round stage firms. And you know, if you think about Striver, right, a VR company, when we first partnered with Striver, um, you know, they didn't have an NFL professional team. And now take a look at, you know, how many teams they have that enhances the player performance. And so I could probably give you a couple examples of those, but our, our thought process was to change a little bit around how sponsorship was viewed. So if a company can't write you a six-figure check, but um, you can really help them from a strategic approach and branding approach, um, you know, what that might mean to an equity stake in a, in a company or a firm. And I can't get into all the ones that we're involved in, but it really became a, just a different way to look at strategically at, you know, your business or sports performance or, you know, again, just to improve, again, overall fan experience. So a company like Striver, you'll help them strategically, help them grow and they may also be a sponsor or advertiser at Levi's Stadium, or they may not. You may just help them to continue to grow their business, and who knows where that goes. You'll, you know, you, even if you don't put in equity, it's from a management standpoint. Is, am I understanding that correctly? That is spot on. That is spot on. So, um, yeah, not, not everyone we take a check from, and not everyone would pay us a check um, to get involved. Very so. interesting. Very. Inter- I know you probably can't give the names of a lot of these companies, but – could could you offer some of some of the types of industries you know, you've been working with? Certainly, I mean, I think we've done food and beverage industries. Um, we've done um, again sports technology. So if you think about VR, AR, uh, um, you know the, those types of industries, we've done some sports performance um, companies. So if you think about hydration or data science, um, so we've done some of those things. So our thesis was really to obviously take the world of sports or fan experience or live content and think about those who are in that space or getting into that space that could help aid us and we could help aid them uh, as they go along their path. And then at times we've obviously, we've, we've incubated a company um, through our technology, Levi's Stadium Venue Next, where it, really, it started out as 49ers employees building our software application um, that, that sat on top of the infrastructure that we built here, we felt like that was obviously a business that we could uh, that we could take out of Levi's Stadium, similar to probably Jerry's Legends. Well, now Venue Next has partners in in the world of sports and hospitality, such as Disney, um, that they're working with. And so um, we we again we act as investors, and then at times we might take an operational stance inside of a company if we feel like we have expertise in that world. You know, it's it's all the power of the brand, right? You you, you were touching on using the word brand uh, and describing some things when we first started this uh, chat. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why, you know, s- people now are paying incredible prices for sports teams, particularly those that have the powerful brands, because it's obviously no longer about just the tickets, 
people coming through the gate and then it expanded to the big TV money and all. I mean, this is leveraging a brand far beyond the gridiron. No question, Mike. You described it. I mean, I was talking to a I – I went up to the GeekWire conference in Seattle uh, a month or so back, and one of the people asked me, why are you at the GeekWire conference um, as a sports team? And I gave them the answers that we've been talking around about the companies we invest in. And, you know, when I got into this industry, sports was – to me, it was sort of like a movie theater, right? You open up the doors and people came. And then, obviously, the sales boom started with people – really, you know, having to be aggressive in the space of getting out there and selling space. You know, and then the arena boom and stadium boom happened of the early 2000s where a lot of club space came online. And now you look at these stadiums and ballparks and arenas and and staffs have, um, you know, they have development people on staff. They have investors um, or venture people on staff. They have, uh, they might have government relations people on staff. And so, Sports has changed dramatically. Uh, you know, it, it continues to change, and it's just more at, at a rapid pace. I mean, right now, you know, we continue to build out our production and content teams because the world of content is just—it's uh, growing like a weed. And and how you and P, and how fan, our fans consume that on the multiple platforms that they do, um, we just can't keep up with it. I and mean, we we have to just build out our team. And and I I'm really excited about all the change. I think live sports is is as strong as it's ever been. And, uh, and, and again, I think our job is to take advantage of that. We, earlier when we were talking, you mentioned when you got there, or well, actually last year, you know, it was a challenging year. Team won two games. I'm, I'm thinking, though, if, if, if I'm Al Guido and I'm, I'm working out certain contracts now, uh, my business partners, I'm probably going short term. In other words, I know the team's going to turn around and I know once it gets back to being really good, there's that extra marginal difference in terms of exposure and all these other things. You know, I don't do your job, I'm guessing. Or does performance not matter? Do you just go in anyway and say, you know what, our record has nothing to do with it and I'm looking at it completely differently? I mean, I think anybody in the sports business has said winning didn't improve or aid their business operations would be lying. I mean, of course it does. I mean, it... There's no question. Although I, I don't think that you should run your business based off forecast. I mean, you know, whether you're going to be good or I mean, I think you should you should you should run your businesses with whatever best practices you deem fit. And then obviously, if you win, it, all those things will be enhanced. If you lose, it'll help you during that downturn or whatever downturn you may have. We've been fortunate enough to have great fans where we haven't seen a downturn in the last three years of our business, but. You know, I don't spend a lot of time on, on, on. Well, I should say we don't spend a ton of time thinking about do we do a three-year deal or a five-year deal. You can go either way, Mike. I mean, there's an argument to be made for if you have uh, long-term contractually obligated income baked to your stadium or your football team, that maybe you can go focus on creating other new revenue streams versus spending a lot of time renewing deals if you only do two or three year deals right so a lot of it is doing analysis on how much does the incremental value really mean to us from an employee time perspective to creativity or what other businesses we might want to get involved in and so you know i think you can spend a lot of time spinning your wheels to create smaller incremental dollars where 
if you were to lock certain things up for a little while, you get great partnerships that want to work with you through good and bad because in a long-term relationship, that's going to happen. And it also gives you the flexibility to go create new revenue streams or new opportunities or new ideas or new companies um, that will keep your employees engaged and your fan base feeling good about um, you know, the things that you're out doing in the marketplace. Um, you know, we were talking about Jerry Jones uh, a little while ago, and I remember listening to Jerry at one point, and he was talking to some reporters. He he was telling this story about he was talking to some reporters, and about one of his players had gotten into a little bit of trouble, nothing serious, and and he sort of said he sort of publicly chastised them a little bit for putting too much press onto the story, but at the same time said, but I still want you to really cover it, wink, wink, because thinking that, you know, almost any news and coverage is good news. And I'm fast-forwarding to today where now with social media, anything that happens is out there in a nanosecond, no matter how big or small. How does social media and the fact that I mean, you went through this experience with Colin Kaepernick firsthand, you know, with, with the national anthem and all that. But it's 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 everywhere. It's all players. Th- does that impact your job at all in terms of what you're trying to do? No question. I mean, I think players. What I love about social media is players or businesses uh, understand um, the value of quote unquote their own message, right, and building their own brands and. Not to say that every team relied on traditional media before, but prior to social media, there wasn't a lot of other ways to do that, right? And so I I view it as a positive. Now, there's an extreme education factor in any of these things. I mean, uh, whether it be players or employees, I mean, there is a, a brand to uphold, and there's a message that obviously the team wants to send. But, you know, we talk a lot about how journalism or communication has changed, and I think the benefits of some of this is the team can tell its message, right? It doesn't have to rely on anybody else to tell its message. And the team can directly communicate with its fans now, um, maybe different than it, than, it, than it could in the past. And I think sports players are, you know, if you think about the, 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 the best guys in, in the world of sports and how they think about their own personal brand, I mean, I think all that stuff is, is good. If channeled in the right way, and educated um, around messaging and, and being smart about it, I think it's all positive. Al, you've given a lot of your time to this podcast, and I, I greatly appreciate it. But before I let you go, I have to ask you one more question. I've met Jerry Jones, you know, I've spent a lot of time with him. I've never had the pleasure of meeting Jed York. So if I was going to contrast the two, what would you tell me are the things that are most similar about them or the thing that is the most different? The most similar about Jed York and Jerry Jones is their passion to win and their willingness to do whatever it takes at all costs to do it. And um, I love Jed and working for Jed because I know that the most important thing to him is building a great staff and culture and winning. I mean, he really desperately wants to bring a Super Bowl back to the Bay Area because he knows what it would mean to his fans. And and I think Jerry would say the same thing. You know, all the other stuff we talked about on this podcast is fantastic, and we're a business, and we have to do those things, and that's my job. But it's not lost on any of us that, man, sports is great, and sports brings people together. And when you win, there's no greater feeling. And we need to get – we want to get back there. So that's probably the most similar about them. 
the most the, the thing that's not similar is obviously how they go about it. Um, Jed, Jed's a little bit quieter maybe than Jerry is and, and not as out front, and there's nothing wrong with either way. And, uh, and I think that, again, they both give the people that work for them the support and guidance and, and financial wherewithal to do what they deem is fit to either run the business or put the best team on the field. Now, I don't think the 49ers don't play the Giants this season, do they? I don't think so. The 49ers do not. Yeah, we do play the Giants. Oh, we Giants do. This okay. Here. Yeah. Out there. Okay. So, yeah. so we're, we're getting close to the point where you and I are not going to be friends for a few weeks. And then oh, we'll, we'll come be. On. <laughs> now, now, uh, hey. I got eleven, twelve circled on my calendar, Mike. You need to get you need to get out here to Santa Clara and Levi's to watch your Giants take on our Niners. Thank you very much. I'm gonna have to take you up on that. You see, ladies and gentlemen, how I'm able to coax a uh, uh, an invitation from a very kind Al Guido. Well, everybody, you've had the pleasure and honor of listening to Al Guido, the president of the San Francisco 49ers, and you witnessed firsthand the invitation for me to go out and see the. 49er giant game al thanks a million uh it was a lot of fun it was an education and i hope we get to do it again soon you got it mike look forward to seeing you on the giants game all right thanks pal take care that's it for this episode of forbes sports money thanks for listening if you want to get in touch with a comment or question please email us at sportsmoney at podcast1.com that's one.com Hello, this is Coach Jim Harbaugh with my esteemed colleague and co-host J.T. Rogan. And we're excited to announce our new podcast, Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast, that's coming to Podcast One. Each week we'll be talking to different members of the Harbaugh family along with athletes, celebrities, and unique guests. On different episodes, we'll have my dad, Jack, my brother, John, my sister, Joni, my wife, Sarah, and even my kids from time to time. We'll have great guests each week and we'll attack each podcast with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. Sounds pretty good to me. So join us each Tuesday on Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast here on Podcast One. Also make sure to subscribe on PodcastOne.com, on the new Podcast One app, or at Apple Podcasts. And Coach, who's got it better than us? I know the answer to that, JT. Nobody. Technology Truths, brought to you by GEICO. Technology Truths. Truth, you think you can solve any problem by turning your computer off and on. Hey man, is something wrong with your laptop? Nah, I just need to turn it off and on. It's no problem. It's smoking. Yeah, that just means it needs to reboot. Truth. It's so easy to switch and save on car insurance at Geico.com. And now it's on fire. Happens all the time. It's all good. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. London police have arrested Julian Assange on extradition charges to the United States, as well as for violating his bail. Assange is accused of publishing classified documents through WikiLeaks. In 2010, he told Sky News he was worried about what the U.S. might do to him. The United States recently has shown that its institutions seem to be failing. Uh, They are failing to follow the rule of law. And with dealing with a superpower that does not appear to be following, following the rule of law is a serious business. He also said in 2010 the U.S. officials had threatened him and those associated with him. There has been many calls by senior political figures uh, in the United States, uh, including elected ones in the Senate, 
uh, for my execution, uh, the kidnapping of my staff. Edward Snowden, the former security contractor who leaked classified information about U.S. surveillance programs, says the arrest of Assange is a blow to media freedom. I'm Rita Foley.